Hebrews chapter 12, this morning we'll be looking at verses 12 through 17. Hear now the word of the Lord. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. This is the word of the Lord. If you are prone to watch horror movies, which I am not, but I know that some of you are, you know that one of the main rules for survival in any horror movie is don't split up. Stay together. The person who says, hey, I'll be right back, doesn't ever come back. Okay? You have to stay together. That's how you survive. And likewise, we see, see here in these verses that for the Christian journey, the rule is very much the same. You have to stay together. You are not made to journey alone. In fact, those who do go off alone often suffer for it. I can't remember if it was Moody or Spurgeon. I wasn't planning on sharing this story, but it just occurs to me that someone once mentioned to him that I am a Christian. I believe the gospel. I read the Bible. I do not need the church. And this great thinker of the Christian faith, as they were sitting around a fire, simply reached in with the tongs and took an ember out of the fire and set it between them. And they silently watched as that ember died. No further argument was needed. You, Christian, are a single ember that needs the warmth of the community of God. And these verses speak to that. Cain famously asked God, Am I my brother's keeper? The answer for you is yes. When it comes to your sisters and brothers in Christ, we are not just co-religionists who happen to show up at the same place of worship. We are a body that is mutually dependent upon one another. None of us walks the way of truth alone. And the travel mates that we have here are not just people who happen to be going in the same direction, but otherwise are independent of us. Instead, we are made to travel together making sure that no one lags behind, gets lost, or gets too weary to continue. And this, in all things, points us to the grace of God who provides for us, in His mercy, what we need to finish the journey. And one of the things that we need are the people who travel together with us, communicating to us, in word and in deed, the grace of God. So in these verses from Hebrews, written to a people of God under persecution, under heavy opposition for the gospel, struggling, weary, and ready to give up, it is written to remind them of their duty towards one another for mutual strengthening and encouragement and accountability. And so there's several things I want to see about how we live out the gospel together, together being the operative word here according to these verses in Hebrews. And the first thing I want to see is that together we strengthen through encouragement. This passage begins by saying, therefore, which you always have to ask, what's the therefore, therefore? You look back and see what we looked at last week as Randy showed us about the discipline of the Lord. 
And as God's people are undergoing strenuous and unpleasant discipline, which God brings on those that he loves, it is tempting to give up. You know, just as marathon runners encounter the wall, that point in the race where they just want to be done and, and, and just want to give up and have it over with. Likewise, for Christians going through difficult times for the sake of the gospel, the discipline of the Lord makes us want to give up. And the promise that ended our study last week was that that difficult season, the discipline of the Lord is a time of training that will eventually pay off. It will soon be over and it will pay off with great rewards for those who endure it. And so in verse 12, he says, because of that promise, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Any drooping hands and weak knees here this morning? Metaphorically or literally, I, I would say. Uh, he's quoting here from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah, who is telling people that they must encourage one another with the promise that God will come to save his people. Listen to Isaiah 35. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. First thing to notice from those verses that are being quoted in Hebrews is that it's the action of strengthening is not just telling yourself to be strong and to be encouraged. It's not just telling one individual, hey, you, be strong, be encouraged. But rather, it is an instruction to the people of God to speak to one another words of encouragement and life to speak to those who are struggling and downcast and weary and ready to give up and to say to them, for you to say to them, be strong, fear not. Behold, God will come and save you. This is the image of brave soldiers before the battle speaking to the rookies, the new guys, trying to get them to have courage before the fight begins or the veterans on the sports team getting the rookies all hyped up before the game or the grandmother who speaks to the, the, new, the mother of the newborn saying, honey, you are stronger than you realize and you can do this. In the church, we practice that. It should always be the same. That we breathe life and power to those who need it, at times letting them lean on our faith when their faith is weak. And likewise, when we are struggling, not withdrawing, not disappearing, not going away and coming back when we feel like we deserve to be here, but instead leaning in and on others to find strength. The second thing to notice from that passage is what it is we look to and what we point others to in order to be encouraged and gain strength. I recall one time in one of my many um, excursions I went on when I lived overseas, trying to go through a jungle area and having to pass almost out of a movie, a, a wooden, rickety wooden bridge over a crevice that just, you know, I'm pretty sure that thing could not withstand the weight of a house cat, let alone me, and not wanting to step on it for fear that it wouldn't work. And our tour guide, who spoke very little English, could tell our group's hesitancy to cross the bridge. And not having the words to, to tell us it was okay, and, and not what he did not do was tell us, just do it, just get out there and do it. He instead went out into the middle of the bridge and grabbed on to the ropes and then did this. 
stomping up and down until we were convinced that this was not going to break underneath us, unless he had just weakened it to the point of breaking. I didn't want to think about that. And then came back and just, see, see, you can go now. What we tend to do too often as Christians when we see one another discouraged is we say, you can do it. Be brave. Get out there. Stop being wishy-washy. Take action. Be strong. But what we need to do is say, look how strong the bridge is. Your God will come and save you. He can be trusted. It will not break underneath. His promises will be true. He will come and save you. We don't say to one another, believe in yourself and you can do this. Dig deep and you'll find strength in you. That's not where our strength comes from. Instead, we point others to the certainty of God's deliverance. For the original audience of Hebrews, that was especially important because they were being persecuted, treated unfairly and unjustly. They had no access to power or to justice. What hope did they have except that God would intervene, that God would avenge the wrongs and make things right? But for us, it is much the same. Even if our need is not as great or as dire as theirs was, we see a culture and a world that has rejected God and his ways and that despises his people. We see the people of God subject to scorn and opposition and even open hostility and violence. What do we do to strengthen and encourage one another? Do we look forward and call one another to look forward to the next election when hopefully if we get the right people in office and pass the right laws, then things will be better for the people of God? Is that our hope? Or, or do we try to build a wall between ourselves and the world so that nothing can get through and at least we'll be safe and okay and comfortable as long as we don't have to interact with the big bad people out there? Or do we distract ourselves with entertainment and pleasure and addictions so that we don't think too much about how bad things are? If we do that, we are not turning ourselves towards true hope. We strengthen one another by directing our focus to the source of true strength. In Romans 16, Paul says to him who is able to strengthen you, how, how does God strengthen us? According to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. The preaching of the gospel, not just from the pulpit by a preacher, but to one another from one another. As you remind one another that you may not feel great about yourself right now, but it's not how well you do that matters. It's what Christ has done for you. It's not your behavior that saves you in the sight of God and secures you for his kingdom. It is that Jesus has died on the cross for your sins. He has paid your debt. We preach the gospel to one another, not just on Sunday morning, not just by the professionals. We all remind Remind one another of the truths of God's word and the promises he has given. The preaching of the gospel strengthens us then because in the gospel we are taught that it is not your strength, it is Christ in you that works. As Paul says in Colossians 1, speaking of his own work and his own ministry, he says, I toil, struggling with all, and we would expect him to say, with all my might, with all my energy. But no, he says, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Child of God, you have the power, the energy, the strength of God in you. 
If you feel weary of being faithful to God, if you feel unmotivated to take up your cross and follow him, if you feel too weak to swim against the current of culture and habit, hear therefore the promises of God. Remind one another of these things. Your strength is never what's in view. Your strength is not relevant. You can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens you. So lift up your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees. The journey is almost over, but not yet. Your reward and your rest are ahead. Tell one another, speak to one another, remind one another that your God will come and save you. And together as we do that, together we strengthen through encouragement. But what do we do with this strength that we are graciously given? Its purpose is laid out for us in the next verses. The author of Hebrews goes on to show that we are strengthened in order that we may strive. So together, we strive, we work hard for obedience. Verse 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. There's two things in view here that we strive for, peace and holiness, which may seem unrelated or even at odds at times. He says, first, to strive for peace with everyone. What does everyone mean? Does it mean strive for peace with everyone in your church? Strive for peace with everyone who is a Christian? Strive for peace for everyone who is nice to you and you can get along with? Everyone means, believe it or not, everyone. Okay? Your enemies, the people who are completely different. As Paul says in Romans 12, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Paul's saying, do as much as you can do. At some point, you may have exhausted your ability to bring peace in a relationship, but don't stop until you've gotten to that point. Do everything that you can do. And the author of Hebrews says to strive to be at peace, meaning you have to work for it. You have to pursue it, not just see if it happens. Now, this is being spoken to a people who are being teased, mocked, arrested, persecuted for being Christians. And they are told that they need to strive for peace. How much more should we? In striving for peace, we do everything that we can to make sure that if anyone has a beef with us, if they have a problem with us, it's not because of something we have said or done. It's not because we've been rude or hurtful. It's not because we have picked a fight and tried to embarrass or humiliate someone. It's not because we've criticized them or judged them or treated them poorly. Striving for peace means you have treated others with all the respect and love that they are due as images of God. To such a degree that if they find any offense, if they have any problem with you, if there's any lack of peace, it's because of the gospel message, not because of the gospel messenger. Peter speaks of this in 1 Peter 3, saying, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that's in you. But do this with gentleness. Do this with respect, having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, when these people speak evil of you, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. They have no reason to speak against you because your every attitude, your every disposition, and your every action has been towards peace, has been respectful. They take issue with God's word. 
This calls us to draw near to others and not to shut them off. It calls us to build bridges to others and not walls between us and them. It calls us to draw our circle larger and to include more people in it. And some of you I know are feeling really uncomfortable with those suggestions right now. So I'll hurry on to the other striving as that one percolates in the back of your mind. Notice also that we strive, verse 14, for holiness. The holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Holiness pulls us in the other direction. To strive for holiness is to be separate from sin and from all that is not a part of God's perfect design for us. It's to prepare yourself for special service by removing sin from yourself and yourself from sin. As Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? That would be a name of a false god. What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. So let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of, the Lord, of God. Do you see how that compels us in the other direction? The call to strive for peace, which drew us towards other people and into relationship, seems to pull us the other way from the striving for holiness, which is to remove ourselves, to distance ourselves from sin. It's a strange tension for the one who strives for obedience. To seek to live at peace, and in fact to work for peace with all, while also seeking to be separate through holiness. Most Christians, in my observation, and most churches and even denominations tend to lean one way or the other, sometimes even to the extreme. But we are not called to neglect one of those strivings just because we're pursuing the other. We're called rather to strive for both and in doing so to imitate Jesus. A holiness that does not at the same time pursue peace, a holiness that seeks to offend a holiness that cuts people off because they are not like us it is in danger of misrepresenting Christ, the friend of sinners who sought and found welcome among many that the religious leaders and the so-called holy people of his day had written off and rejected and condemned. But on the other hand, a peace that does not strive for holiness is in danger of becoming so identified with a world of sin that it's no longer distinct from a world of sin and is instead consumed by it. Such a striving for peace that neglects holiness has forgotten the words of Jesus in John 17 that we are not of the world, even as Jesus is not of the world. And so we strive for obedience which for some people means they need to strive more greatly, take greater strides towards peace. For others, it means they need to focus more on striving towards holiness. And the result described in verse 13 is that we make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. A lack of peace and a lack of holiness both become stumbling stones uh, rocks on the road, not the big boulder that blocks your path and not the little pebble that gets in your shoe and is annoying, but the rock that's just big enough so that as you're walking along and don't see it in your periphery, you hit it and, and it just twist your ankle 
messes with your knee, puts your hip out of joint. Not living in a holy way and not pursuing peace become those stumbling stones for ourselves and for those who travel with us. And we are called to remove those stumbling stones, to not fail to strive for holiness, but likewise to not fail to strive for peace. So he goes on in verse 15 to make clear he's not just talking about your personal responsibility to strive for peace and for holiness, but your responsibility to make sure that one another, that all of you are doing this. Verse 15, see to it, see to it. Here's your job. Here's what you're supposed to do. Make sure that no one among you fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. This is a fascinating verse to me. He's not saying, hey, you, Christian, make sure you don't fail to obtain the grace of God. He says, he says instead, hey, church, hey, people of God, make sure that no one else is failing to obtain the grace of God. Make sure none of you is missing out on God's blessing, on his inheritance. What is this root of bitterness that he's warning against here? You know, when I, when I see that at first without any looking into it, I, I think, well, when I think root of bitterness, I'm picturing the arms crossed, sulky person in church who's just grumpy. Make sure there's no root of bitterness. Okay. But that, that's not what's going on here. He's actually quoting from the Old Testament a time in Israel's history when they were preparing to enter the promised land and God was warning them. And he said, look, here's what's going to happen. You've been trusting me, more or less, to get you out of Egypt and through the desert and now you're arriving in the promised land and what's going to happen is you're going to be surrounded by all these people practicing different things, different faiths, different worships, different things they trust in, different things they believe in, and you're going to be tempted to let go of the God who has brought you this far and cling to something else. And he says these words in Deuteronomy 29, Beware then, lest there be among you a man, a woman, a clan, a tribe, anyone whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God and go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, here's the bitter root, here's what it looks like. One who when he hears the word of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart saying, I will be safe even though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. The root of bitterness is not bitterness. It's not warning us against being angry or upset or jealous or grumpy. It's, it's warning against turning away from the truth that you hear, the God of your salvation, and instead latching on to fixing your hopes and aspirations and your devotion and your identity on anything else, on, on politics, on money, on comfort, on your family, on wealth, on image. Such a choice, such a turning is a root that gets planted and later produces bitter fruit that you will regret. This is a warning to those who, as he said in Deuteronomy, who hear the words of this sworn covenant. That's people who are coming to church, ladies and gentlemen. That's people who are listening to the sermon and hearing the songs and even singing them and yet not living in the way that the word of God prescribes and thinking, I will be fine. I'll be fine. I'm a good person. I'm in the right place. I give the right money. I'm, I'm going to be fine. 
even though I live in the stubbornness of my heart. God warns in the next verse of Deuteronomy 29, he says, the Lord will not be willing to forgive him. Such a person has rejected the path of God's grace. That's what it means when he says, make sure no one fails to obtain the grace of God. It doesn't mean God's dangling his grace out there. Hey, anybody want to get the grace? Get the grace? Jump up and get the grace, everybody. That's not what he's saying. God has given his grace, but he gives it for a purpose. And if you don't follow through on the purpose of that grace, a grace that enables us to obey, to walk in his ways, if you don't pursue the the goal of that grace, if you reject the goal and purpose of that grace, then it's all for naught. It's all for nothing. The grace doesn't produce what it's supposed to produce. And instead, you get what the bitter root produces. Regret and rejection. God's grace always has a purpose. And we can miss out on the blessings of that grace by rejecting His purpose for us. No, God's grace comes to us freely and fully in Jesus Christ. He's not saying make sure nobody fails to do all the things they've got to do to please God. He's saying, no, God, Jesus has laid down his life for us to make us a holy people, conform to the image of Jesus Christ in order to bring him glory and ourselves great joy. And if you say, I want the forgiveness of God, but not everything that that forgiveness is designed to do in my life, which is to make me a joyful person living an abundant life according to the ways of God, then you're not really receiving the grace of God. You're failing to obtain it and all that it's intended to give. So in verse 16, he warns, make sure no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Touching on sexual immorality is just one example of of being defiled that he talked about in the previous verse, of failing to obtain the grace of God, choosing that root of bitterness, living a different way. One example of that. It's worth noting the assumption here that even our sexual life, obedience to God in that most private of things, is not something of which the Bible says we can say, that's nobody's business but my own. Instead, it falls under the loving design and intentions of what God has for us. And it's an area of our life that we are supposed to be held to account in by our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Something that we are told even in particular to watch out for among one another as we together strive for obedience and seek to make sure that none of us is missing out on God's grace because of the choices we're making. The last way that we help one another on the journey is by safeguarding our inheritance. Together, we safeguard our inheritance. And to look at that, we see the story of Esau in verse 16. Esau sold his birthright for a single meal. If you recall the story, Esau was the older of the twins, Jacob and Esau, the sons of Isaac, the son of Abraham. And in their culture, the oldest son, even if it was just by a few minutes, the oldest son had what was called a birthright, which meant because he's the oldest son, he gets a double or even more portion of the physical inheritance. And he gets authority over the family. When dad dies, the oldest son takes over. That's his birthright. It's authority and it's an an extra portion an abundant portion of the inheritance. And there's this day where Esau returns after hunting and he's been out a long time and he is famished. He is starving. He is, he just wants some food and he comes, you know, if they had doors, he bursts the door open. But I think he like flips open the flap of the tent and here's Jacob who's been at home 
making some food. Now, Jacob is not righteous in this. Jacob is not the hero here. Jacob is manipulative and deceptive in this, as he is through most of his life. But here's what happens in Genesis 26. Esau comes in, he's like, give me some food. And Jacob says, sell me your birthright now. And Esau says, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? And Jacob says, well, that's fine and good, but swear it. Swear it to me now. And so Esau swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. Esau ate and drank and rose and went away. And thus Esau despised his birthright. The point the author of Hebrews is making is this, that Esau made a choice. Faced with weariness, hunger, and difficulty, he gave up the inheritance that was his in order to have temporary relief from his suffering. Esau despised, it says. He looked down on. He counted too cheap the inheritance that was his. And this, this inheritance wasn't just flocks and tents and money. It was God had made a promise to Abraham to give him the entire land of Canaan, to make him into a great nation, to prosper him. That blessing passed down to Isaac, and Isaac was going to pass it down to one of his sons, and it would have been Esau. But Esau gave it up. He despised not only the physical inheritance, but all the blessings that God had promised to pass on through Abraham. He gave up an eternal blessing in order to get temporary comfort. And in every age, God's people are faced with the same choice. The, the original audience of Hebrews is faced with that choice. They're being persecuted. They're being chased out of their homes. They're losing their jobs. And they're saying, this would all stop if we would just turn away from Jesus and go back to what we believed before. And the author of Hebrews is saying, you do that and you become an Esau. You become an Esau because you're giving up the greater inheritance for a temporary relief. In the end, Esau realized what a poor choice he had made. And by then it was too late. The bitter root had borne fruit. In verse 17, afterwards, he desired to inherit the blessing. And he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. People of God, watch out for one another. Make sure that no one is counting too cheap the promises of God and becoming willing to trade the eternal blessing for temporary satisfaction. You know, I grew up in Newport News, Virginia, where we had Patrick Henry Mall, Patrick Henry Airport, Patrick Henry Shopping Center, Patrick Henry everything. Because I think Patrick Henry was from Newport News, is my guess. But uh, we, everybody in, in school, in, in Newport News school districts, had to memorize Patrick Henry's famous speech, which I, I know some of you know the last part of it. Is life so dear, or is peace so sweet, as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, almighty God! I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. Okay, Patrick Henry's point was, we have this goal, this ideal, this thing we greatly desire, liberty. But are we willing to say that no, our own lives and our peaceful living are more important to us than liberty? We are going to give up on liberty that we may have peaceful existence. His point is you, you, can't, you might not be able to hold on to both of them. If you want this, you've got to let go. You've got to be ready to let go of that. Jesus is making the same point when he warns us that if you find something that you are not willing to let go of for the kingdom, you have found an idol that needs to be dealt with. 
Obedience involves sacrifice, sacrifice of time, money, comfort, the respect of your peers, the lifestyle that you were hoping to attain. They may offer a temporary satisfaction. We may through them think we've avoided the pain of discipleship. But in grasping those things, it's like grasping and clinging to life and peace and losing liberty. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 16, if anyone would follow after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What will it profit a man if he gains a bowl of lentil stew and forfeits his internal inheritance? Sorry, that's the Esau version. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? point is the same. Whatever you think you are going to gain by letting go of the inheritance to attain a temporary joy, it's lentil stew compared to the eternal inheritance that you've been promised. Watch out for one another. Jesus promises that whatever we give up for the sake of his name, whatever we have to let go of, in exchange for the inheritance, we will not miss it in the end. We will not feel cheated. We will not regret it. For what we gain in Christ, the inheritance that we get, is always worth more than what we give up. Esau chose a temporary comfort, a temporary satisfaction, and lost an eternal blessing. What temporary joy and satisfaction are you tempted by? Are your brothers and sisters being tempted by? Don't encourage one another to be loyal to those things. Instead, warn one another when you see your brother or your sister in danger, when you see their heart going after things that will not satisfy, when you see us trying to find the, the safer route instead of the route of discipleship and obedience, remind one another of the irreplaceable, inestimable value of our inheritance and together safeguard it and make sure no one Let's go of that inheritance or trades it in for something that will not satisfy in the end. Make sure, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you fail to obtain the grace of God. Now, it may feel like with all that we've been seeing here that since we need so much help from one another to keep on the journey, that everything is against us, even perhaps God himself throwing obstacles in our way just to see how we struggle and suffer to get to the end. I want to wrap up here by showing and suggesting that, in fact, the opposite is true. In the midst of the struggles and difficulties, see how, instead, how God is pursuing us. We talk about the means of grace in the Reformed tradition. When we talk about the means of grace, we're talking about those ways in which God's grace meets us. The means, the, the avenues through which his grace flows and we experience it. We talk about the word of God as a means of grace. He communicates his grace to us as we, as we dig deeply in his word. We talk about prayer as a means of grace. We talk about the sacraments, the Lord's Supper and, and baptism as means of grace where we, we interact with and engage with and come into contact with the grace of God. And what I'm suggesting here today is that there's another means of grace that we've been hearing about all day, all morning. And that is the people of God. The, the community of God's people are a way in which God's grace is communicated to us. 
It's not one we often think of because sadly very many of us have had poor experiences with churches. If not hurt, we've at least been underwhelmed by what's gone on in a church. And for those that were in Sunday school, I would remind you this morning, you are the church. Maybe you've seen bad leaders. Maybe you've seen bad organizations and structures and systems and have been hurt by it or not affected by it. But you are the people of God called to communicate grace to one another, a grace that leads each other to our final destination. In Psalm 127, we are reminded that unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. As we encourage one another, as we strengthen one another through these words, as we strive with one another, watch out for another, one another, warn one another, we are doing it with confidence because we know that we are engaged in an undertaking that God himself is doing. God has given us each other in order to make sure that we reach the journey's end. He has given us this means of grace by which we make it safely home. So that in the end, all of our strivings, all of our efforts is still the work of God in us by his Holy Spirit. And so as we'll sing in just a moment here, the glory is not to me or you. The glory is not to the people who carried me to the finish line. The glory is to Christ who provided you for me, who provided me for you, and who provides all these things for his glory. So let us pray and sing of the glory of the one who sees us safely home, calling us to make that journey together. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you that he has gone before us, the author and finisher of our faith. Thank you that you have given us the church, our brothers and sisters, equipping us to serve one another, bless one another, encourage one another, strengthen one another. May we lean more closely to the body of Christ as each of us has need. May each of us be quick to give a word of strength and encouragement and warning and truth to our brothers and sisters. And may each of us be quick to receive such a word. And in all these things, may we see that it is your grace at work through us to bring glory to your name until all the church is gathered together to praise you and to sing all glory be to Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.